and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another edition of The Spook Show. I'm Terry Price. And I am Harold Presley. And we're so excited to have you with us today because we have with us an excellent guest. Yeah. Uh, and we're excited about having him on our show today, and you're going to love it. Uh, but before we get to that, we yeah. want to let you know exactly what we're all about here. If, you, if this is your first time joining us. And I hope it's not. We're a regular guy look at the spooky paranormal stuff that you just can't explain. You know, that kind of stuff that maybe keeps you up. Can't sleep afterwards. That, that sort of thing. Because if you're like me, that happens a lot. <laughs> you know, there's certain movies I won't even watch it if it's nighttime. I mean, you know that. Too, yeah, yeah. You know? Maybe we need to have an episode on the spookiest movies we've That's ever seen. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that and get maybe get other people to tell us theirs and we can share those as well. Right, That'd be kind of right. awesome. Yeah. And tell you what, we're not experts about this. We just like to talk about this stuff because it's interesting to us and we have to have interesting guests on like we do today and uh you want to follow us we want you to do that make sure you like and subscribe to our youtube page our facebook pages and uh, you can email us the stories or anything you want to email us uh, you can do that price presley show at gmail.com it's really important that you uh, uh send us your stories because without yeah. your stories we don't have a show and don't forget to uh comment yeah either, either like on comments youtube good or, or bad doesn't matter or on Facebook or whatever, talk to us. Let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. Uh, let us know what you'd like to hear on the show. That's really important as that, well. Yeah. We need we need to hear from you so that we can continue to do shows that you're interested in. We, we, yeah, we really like doing this. We want to continue to do it. So yeah, it's, it's a lot yeah. of fun. Lot of All fun. right, without any further ado, and I don't I don't want to drag this out too much, let's get to our <laughs> guest today. Yeah. This gentleman is a widely recognized cryptozoologist. He's an author and lecturer who frequently appears on television television. I've seen a lot of the episodes that mm -hmm. he's in, and he's traveled the world searching for evidence of mysterious creatures, including Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, Mothman, and the Beast of, I don't even know how to say that word. Ken, how do you say that word? The Beast of... Gévaudan. Gévaudan. That sounds like sounds French. Gévaudan. <laughs> yes. Is it French? French? Oh, good. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Spook Show, Mr. Ken Gerhard. Ah, welcome to the show, Ken. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Who's he talking to? He said gentlemen. Oh, us. Okay. <laughs> Glad to have you here, Ken. Well, Ken, why don't we start out by you telling us a little bit about what you do. And Harold wants to know, what, yeah. is, what well, is cryptozoology? Yeah, what, what is that? Absolutely. So cryptozoology... Um, translated from Latin, the word crypto means hidden, mm -hmm. and zoology, of course, pertains to the study of animals. So the technical word is hidden, study of hidden animals, uh, but more specifically, it is the search for evidence of animals that are not verified or recognized by science. Nice. And that often includes a lot of uh, kind of our legendary creatures like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, Thunderbirds. Black Panthers, giant snakes, and things like that that people have reported all over the world. And it's largely based on anecdotal evidence. Uh, if we had physical evidence, then these animals would be recognized by science, obviously. Uh, that's right. um, and, uh, you know, there's often a lot of uh, folklore and legends involved. And that's important because many of the great animal discoveries of the past century or so started out as legendary animals, things like the giant squid and the Komodo dragon and the okapi and uh, so forth. So the, the, uh, nice. the one that comes to my mind is, is the mountain gorilla in Africa. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, the mountain gorilla was uh, recognized in 1901, I believe. And uh, we knew about the lowland gorilla. Uh, but um, yeah, so the, you know, we're talking about a, something similar to Bigfoot, right? A giant hominid that weighs several hundred pounds. 
uh, and of course they live in Africa in the in the mountains there. But uh, yeah, that was a pretty amazing discovery when that happened. Well, if an unknown species of ape had gone all those years without being actually verified and discovered, why is it so hard for people to believe that there could be one here in America with all the the millions and millions of acres of uh, wilderness out there? That's a great question. I think a lot of that is perception. Um, you know, some people aren't aware how much wilderness area is out there. You know, people, city slickers and people that maybe don't get out in the woods much. I've been very blessed. I've been able to travel all over the continent of North America, from Alaska, Canada, down into Mexico, Central America. And uh, yeah, um, lots of pristine wilderness out there. Now, think about about 47% of the land's earth surface is still considered to be wilderness area. That's based on a, a recent study. Um, and wilderness areas defined as, you know, basically areas where man doesn't go much or there's not much of an imprint of, of uh, mankind. And so if you think about all of the forests and mountains, jungles, deserts, swamps, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, tundra. I mean, there's just a lot of places where humans don't go because it's very difficult for us to survive or, or function there. So uh, well, that, can't... I think, gives us hope. I just watched a program last night, as a matter of fact, and it was talking about the Amazon rainforest and how vast it really is and that there are actual human tribes that have never, ever even been contacted by us, by the, by the technologically the, advanced yeah, yeah. world, that, 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 that they don't even know that there's such a thing as a car or air conditioning or anything like that. And it's the, the Amazon rainforest just by itself is a vast, vast, unexplored, untouched mm -hmm. area. Mm. Yep. Yep. So, over a hundred, over 100 con uncontacted tribes, by the way. Wow. That's, that's a lot. Wow. That's a lot. So, I mean, you know, that's it, an it, estimate. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it doesn't boggle the mind to, to consider the fact that there may be in, in all the vast wilderness here in the North, especially up in Canada uh, and around that area, uh, untouched wilderness that there could be a bipedal hominid uh, walking around surviving. Okay, I'm going to ask the obvious question here. You just said uh, 100 uncontacted tribes. Now, how do we know if we haven't contacted them that they're there? Well, they, oh, that's a good question. It's an estimate, I think, but yeah. you're right. Well, I, I think some of it has been verified through aerial photography. Aerial, okay, that's what so I'm getting so at. I mean, what, all, what ways have they verified this? Although the Amazon is so dense that it's, it's pretty dense. It's yeah, hard very, to can't see. You know, that's, that's penetrate what, that that canopy. Yeah, I was watching. The same, I don't think it's the same show, but all a right. similar show on planet on planet Earth. I was watching that. Um, can what what we'd like to talk to you about today is here in Texas, where Harold and I are, and, I, and you live in Texas as well, right? Yes, I'm in San Antonio. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, a lot of people don't realize that Texas is fairly well known for Bigfoot sightings. Yes. I mean, it's not just yeah. California, big mountain ranges or anything. It, here in Texas, we have quite a few Bigfoot sightings as well. Let me ask, start you off by asking, is there a difference between the creature that's been sighted in Texas and, let's say, the creature that's been reported in California so often? Yeah, well, um, you know, you brought up a great point. Uh, when most people think of Bigfoot, of course, they think of the Pacific Northwest, places like California, Oregon, Washington State. Uh, those are the top three states uh, in terms of Bigfoot sightings and evidence. Uh, but then you have Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and then Texas, I think, ranks seventh. Really? Uh, in terms of the number of Bigfoot sightings that have been documented. Yeah, so we're pretty high up there. Uh, now, the vast majority of Bigfoot sightings in Texas 
occur in the far eastern section of the state, basically east of I-45. So in the big thicket, uh, Sam Houston National Forest, the Trinity River Corridor, Davy Crockett, and then on the border there with Louisiana and Arkansas, all the way up from the, the Gulf Coast, all the way up to the, the farther northern part. But, uh, you know, that makes sense because you're talking about a habitat that's uh, basically a lot of thick, piney forests, bottoms, uh, very swampy, dense vegetation, uh-huh. conifer trees or pine trees uh, as you get a little bit farther up north there. We had Lyle, yeah. Lyle Blackburn on the show a few episodes ago, and um, one thing that he talked about was also, because we talked about Falk, Arkansas, and the creature from you know uh, Boggy Creek and whatnot, but one thing we talked about was annual rainfall has, has seems to play a part in these Bigfoot sightings. Yeah, of course. They like uh, moisture. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, like many animals do, they, they seek out water, and uh, re- reputedly they're excellent swimmers and uh, they feed a lot near the water uh some of their primary food sources they've reported are fish and uh, things like salmon and mollusks clams and things that they can dig out of the sand so um so that all makes sense and also conifer trees again pine trees yeah um it, it, the anthropologist uh, dr grover krantz who was a leader in, in the bigfoot field for many years scientific leader pointed that out that you know most of the sightings where you have bigfoot are in areas where you have these these conifer trees, uh, evergreens and sequoias and things like that. So uh, we don't know exactly why that is, but I think a lot of those areas uh, tend to be pretty moist uh, for the most part uh, or have higher precipitation. So that that all holds true. Now, as far as the differences, um, I'd say generally speaking, the descriptions are very similar in terms of a man-like figure, bipedal or walking on its hind legs, very human-like gait. But almost completely covered in hair, and of course, massive, massively built, robust, and very tall. The average Sasquatch estimate, height estimate is about seven and a half feet, uh, at least on the Pacific Northwest. Uh, So those things all kind of are consistent, but there are some differences, one being that uh, I'd say the, the Texas versions are maybe estimated to be a little shorter, maybe not much, but you know, maybe six, six and a half, seven foot range rather than the seven, seven and a half to eight foot range. Yeah. Uh, additionally, um, in terms of behavior, and this is not only for Texas, but the eastern United States, uh, it seems as though uh, encounters with Bigfoot, uh, they seem to be a little bit more territorial or aggressive in terms of their disposition. I see. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I generally speaking, I, I'm not an advocate of the killer Bigfoot theories. Um, I think that they are basically wired and designed to avoid humans, that they're very reticent about humans. Um, but it would make sense in the eastern United States where you have sort of fragmented wilderness, where you have reservoirs and right, roadways, right. highways and things. There's a lot of habitat, but it's kind of broken up. Um, whereas in the, in the Pacific Northwest, it's all contiguous where you have this wide range expanse of mountain ranges and forests. So, you know, one theory is that the Eastern Bigfoot or the Texas Bigfoot is more territorial and it feels the impact of man's encroachment on its habitat. And therefore it it displays more aggression. Now, when, when I say that, I mean, in terms of, uh, things like stone throwing, uh, vocalizations that are aggressive, you know, shaking trees, so demonstrative aggression, yeah. where they're just, you know, 
there are some accounts, though, though they're rare, of humans being attacked by Bigfoot, but it's usually more a situation where they, you know, like the Bobby Ford, you were talking to Lyle, so you knew about, you know, the famous right. Buck monster case. Bobby Ford is basically running around in his backyard with a gun and he runs into a Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> so they kind of, yeah. you know, they just... That was, great, that was kind of like an incidental contact situation. <laughs> well, that's what we said. We we, we asked Lyle. We said, uh, "Do you?" Th and, and I'm going to ask you: Do you think that when Bobby Ford ran, started to run around the corner of the house, and the the creature from Boggy Creek was coming around from the other way, do you think they just ran into each other, possibly, and the Bigfoot creature was just startled and was defending itself? Well, obviously, Lyle's done way more research on that case than, than I could ever hope to. So he's, he's the specialist in that area. I've never interviewed any of the, the people involved in that case or really dug into it too deep. But from what I remember, and I have some of the newspaper articles and stuff from, from that time period, it seems like that was more of, of, of what seemed to have occurred. Yeah. yeah. You know, they, that's what we they were too. running around. I mean, the thing was being aggressive. Don't get me wrong. It was reaching through windows and right banging on walls and kind of terrorizing the family. Uh, so they went out to kind of put a stop to it, but it seems like, you know, maybe they, they just kind of, you know, ran into each other, bumped into each other. I don't think the Bigfoot was basically out to attack. Right. You know, and, and, and if it was, for example, why didn't, why didn't it stop with Bobby? Why didn't it stick around and start? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And why didn't it bring the whole group? <laughs> well, it, it, why didn't it kill Bobby? If it was as big as they say it was, it would have had oh, no yeah. problem killing Bobby. Oh, yeah. It would have easily. Oh, yeah. Easily. Yeah, yeah. easily. A, a gorilla, for example. I mean, there are many accounts in zoos, very tragic situations where gorillas have, you know, thrown zookeepers to the ground. And, you know, it's, you could imagine it's, yeah. it's yeah. like being hit by a truck. So you're right. right. Yeah. That would be a thing if, if they wanted to hurt you they could well have you ever had i mean I, I know you research bigfoot quite a bit along with many other cryptids out there but have you ever had any encounters or have you seen or heard or tell us about some of your investigations i've never had a sighting but i've heard i'm convinced i've heard vocalizations uh on a few occasions and a couple of tree knocks uh, you know some, uh, -huh. uh whooping primate sounds some grunts, possibly bipedal footsteps on one location. Uh, at one location, but the most intense encounter I've ever had, and I write about this in my book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, which I have, uh, by that, the way, which is excellent. You folks, if you've you. not read uh, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot by Ken Gerhardt, you yeah. definitely need to pick it up. It's really good, and we will tell you how you can get that. Yeah, August eighteenth, two thousand three. I was in uh, at Little Cottonwood Lake, which is up in uh, the Caddo Grasslands, north of Decatur, Texas. And um, I was up there with three other Bigfoot investigators. We had been informed that some campers had been scared out of the woods recently, and uh, there were some Bigfoot sightings around the, the lake there. So um, we went up there, and we were uh, kind of hiking around the lake just after dark, and suddenly we heard something grunting at us, and it was very loud. Uh, it sounded almost like a grunt combined with heavy, deep breathing and almost diabolical laughter so it, it, the wait 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 just you said diabolical laughter <laughs> yeah i think i think that's that's just more <laughs> of my perspective maybe yeah. i was just so that freaked out by it because it sounded kind of like it was laughing i, I recorded the sound because i had my camcorder going so um oh, wow. wow we uh, couldn't see the thing because it was pretty heavy brush right there by the lake we tried to flush it out um really only one of us was armed and he to his credit got down on his belly and started crawling through the brush with a shotgun 
Uh, and the idea was, you know, we kind of spanned out so he could flush this thing out. We could film it or something. Um, but he kind of thought better of it. <laughs> started to back out after a minute because he guess he, mainly because he was on his belly. Yeah, he's he got, on his belly. Now, that's not a good, you don't want to enter any confrontation in that posture. Oh, no, not a good um, position. I don't care if you're uh, armed or not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, uh, so we basically went to a higher vantage point. There's a levee next to the lake and we had a spotlight that we were shining down where we had heard this thing and we did see some eye shine yellowish green eye shine um, coming back at us. They, they looked high off the ground, but it was hard to tell. Um, and then we went back and set up camp. And uh, throughout the course of the night, we did hear this thing kind of moaning. At, it moved across the lake, and it was kind of wailing or moaning, howling at us, um, very wow. mournful. And uh, it would respond to us if we cried out, mimicked it, it would call back. And um, then uh, nothing really else happened that night but then the following morning we finally made our way through this thick brush uh where we'd heard this thing initially and there was a beach and we did find some deep very deep human-like footprints and we found some um several turtles good-sized turtles that had been ripped in half and Ooh. uh the, the shells were just several of them were laying there and uh no meat left it was just so i mean i can't think of anything any animal or any human or anything that could rip a turtle in half. So, um, hmm. so, you know, we're talk, talking about top to bottom. So, well, um, just all the yeah. behavior that you described uh, during the night, but prior to that morning, there's not many animals out there that would respond that way or would hang around and circle or, you know, continue to make noises and moan and stuff. I can't think of any animal, maybe, maybe a cougar, but, uh, it just doesn't sound like a, a normal animal behavior in the wild. Yeah, no, I couldn't think of anything. And like when we first heard the vocalizations, uh, you know, the four of us there are all basically lifelong outdoorsmen that grew up in Texas. So right. we've heard a lot of different animals through the years. And when we heard this thing, we all just there were a lot of F-bombs dropped and we were looking at each other because <laughs> we literally did not know what this thing was. And I just to me, what it sounded like a primate. <laughs> and, um, uh -huh, uh -huh. you well, know, I. I I, uh, I've been around primates. I work with a zoo and I've, uh, I've been in South and Central America and I've heard howler monkeys and it had that primates of a very distinct sort of, uh, vocalization. And that's kind of what it reminded me of. So. Well, have you had the recording analyzed by any of those, um, audio experts? I mean, which audio experts are we talking? I mean, nobody's really an expert, an audio expert in Bigfoot vocalizations, as far as we no, know. But they, there are, but they can they can determine whether it's within the human range and that sort of thing, correct? Well, that that's true, and I guess a wildlife biologist could listen to it and give an opinion if they thought yeah. it might be something unusual. But no, I haven't had the sounds heavily analyzed, to be honest with you. But um, they're, they're more for your benefit and more for your, you know, it's kind of like when I was investigating with the Dallas area paranormal society, we investigated. And of course we wanted to try to gather all the data we could. But for me, it was more about me proving to myself what's out there than it is to prove to all the world of skeptics that there's more than just what you can see with your eyes. So I, I can kind of understand that. Well, it's also, you know, from my perspective, you know, as a, as a cryptozoologist, I try to follow a very scientific methodology. And right. so in terms of things that I could present to a viable scientist or zoologist, you know, things like vocalizations and 
even photographic evidence is just a non-starter. I right, mean, it's, right. there's so many things you misinterpretation and, you know, potential for hoaxing or different things. So I don't think anyone would ever really take any of that stuff seriously. So I'm, you know, I'm constantly in the, on a quest for hard physical evidence, empirical evidence, things like bones, hair, droppings, blood, right. things that, that, that could prove conclusively. So tissue. I don't, tissue is basically yeah. what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm interested sometimes when people have recordings of vocalizations or have an interesting photo, but I don't, I would never put a lot of effort into try to pushing that I see. or forcing that issue with, you know, because I just don't think that that's been going on for decades in the Bigfoot field and it really hasn't gotten us anywhere. No, so but probably but, similar in the paranormal field. I would say, I would assume. Well, yeah, it is. It's very similar in the paranormal field. Um, but let, let me let me ask you this, and this will kind of tie into our next subject. My problem with the scientific community not taking any of this seriously is the pure and simple fact that these sightings of these large hominid creatures have gone back hundreds of years in the Native American mm-hmm. tradition. And it just seems to me like at least that by itself would at least... Uh, caused the scientific community to go, well, okay, maybe there was something. Maybe it's not, maybe it's extinct now or whatever, but maybe there was a tribe of these things or something, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago. But it it seems to me like the scientific community won't even consider that. But that, to me, that's pretty good evidence. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one pillar of evidence we have with regard to Bigfoot. We have the Native American traditions, which you said, you know, as you said, are very widespread. Um, you have thousands of documented sightings uh, by people through the years. Um, you know, it's hard to explain all of those away. Um, you have the Patterson-Gimlin film that was shot in California right. in 1967. Really the only footage that, it, you know, it's uh, considered to be it's still not accepted by scientists. Uh, but you know, it, it's the most compelling footage. Yeah, it's withstood, it's, recordings. Withstood, it's withstood a lot of debunking efforts. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm and then about. we have we do have. Go ahead. Sorry, no, no right. I was just gonna. We could do a whole show on the Patterson Gimlin <laughs> film. We, yeah, we can if you want. But I was just gonna say the physical trace evidence, uh, which the the footprints and the cast of the footprints, I, I think are the are the best evidence we have, and we have. You know, hundreds of, you know, compelling right. tracks that have been cast all over North America for decades in different locations. And they're very consistent, you know, as far as the morphology and the design. They're very deep. They're not human. They're yeah. human-like, but they're very broad and have a different kind of redesigned yeah. uh, physiology. So, but scientists still, you know, most scientists won't even look at that stuff. But that, you're right. If you put all of that together, oh, and my... The last one, which, uh, you know, is, is I, one that I think is often overlooked, is that things that looked like Bigfoot actually did exist. We have them in our fossil record. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. exactly so, right. So, yeah. so, I mean, it looks like many of the, the ancient hominids that evolved around, you know, one to two million years ago. So, um, so there, there's a lot of evidence. I'm, I'm convinced. I'm 90% yeah. convinced they exist. Well, I, I read, I, I read Dr. Uh, Meldrum's book, uh, and he has done an incredible amount of research in just the, the, and of course that's what he does, but in just the footprints alone and the physiology of the, the footprints and, and the foot and the, and, and the way that the uh, animal uh, 
probably walks with with the mid tarsal break and so on and so forth. And that's that's all pretty compelling <laughs> evidence when you're looking talking about footprints and casts and whatnot. Well, yeah, it is it is to him, and he's a physical anthropologist who specializes in bipedal the evolution of bipedalism in hominids, yeah. which basically yeah. means he isn't a guy in that area. Um, and he's you know gotten a lot of unfortunately he's gotten a lot of flack from from his colleagues oh, and I'm other sure. scientists that think he's kind of way out there and yeah uh even though many of them respect him for for his work in other areas but um and then we also had grover Kranz, who i mentioned earlier that's who right was meldrum uh meldrum's mentor and he was uh a pretty brilliant uh anat- you know anatomist and, and anthropologist yeah. so there are some scientists who've gotten involved and uh, you know, with the vast majority of scientists, and I kind of understand where they're coming from, you know, it's all about maintaining their reputation, yeah. keeping their jobs, keeping their grants, yeah, and, uh, get you know, just getting mixed up or involved with anything Bigfoot related could be like a, you know, suicide in terms yeah. of a, you know, a career. So Sounds like a cover-up um, to me, but, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if, I'd go that far, but I, I definitely think that there's a there's an obvious attitude in the scientific community. Now that that said, that that is there is a, a bit of a paradigm shift going on. So you have uh, Jane Goodall, of course, the famous you know anthropologist and uh, primatologist who she's come out and said that it's possible. That's uh, right. That's right. George Sh- George Schaller, who's a famous zoologist who's worked with gorillas, has come out before and, and actually wrote the foreword to Meldrum's book and said that you know so. Uh, and I, you know, I'm a volunteer educator at the San Antonio Zoo, and they've actually let me do some some cryptozoology lectures there at the zoo, which is an AZA accredited, scientific established, you know. Yeah. So I mean, there there are there are little cracks where you know this in the scientific community is is you know at least listening a little bit. Right. Is a good sign. Well, we talked about uh, all of the uh, Native American lore on Bigfoot, but there's other cryptozoological creatures that are also in the native American lore. And one of them is the Thunderbird. And that Mm. relates to something that you've studied extensively here in Texas. In fact, you may be the foremost expert in what they call the big bird sightings. And we're not talking about Sesame street. Wait a minute. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah. So what we talk about here, Thunderbird, we talking about a real bird. Yeah. The Indians believed it. Well, Ken, I'll let Ken tell you. He knows way more about it than I do. Tell us about these Thunderbirds. Well, um, you know, I often joke that the name Thunderbird, which does come from Native American traditions, mm-hmm. uh, it does refer to kind of a, a muscle car from the 70s yeah. and, uh, yep. and and also a fine wine. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. kind of, uh, well, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't use the word fine in conjunction with that wine because I but, had. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyways, yeah, uh, Thunderbird wine. is a common, it, you know, there's a parallel here to big. Because you have a lot of uh, disparate native traditions all over the continent that talk about these yeah. giant birds, super eagles, if you will, that are basically uh, the name, as the name implies, the sounds of the wings, uh, the sound of the wings beating like thunder, mm, okay. uh, or in some traditions, it actually causes thunder and lightning shoots out of the eyes, which might be a bit of an embellishment. But uh, you know, if you look at the uh, uh, totem poles in the Pacific Northwest and um, you know, there are a number of native names for these things, the Wakanyan, Chegway, uh, Bomala, Binese. So these are all from all over the continent, these different traditions about these giant birds. Well, um, in modern times, I've actually interviewed dozens and dozens of people, credible people, 
that uh, swear that they've seen these things flying around. And uh, there have also been other people that I haven't interviewed that have been documented uh, reporting these things. Um, now, here in Texas, we actually have our own version, which, as you suggested, is named Big Bird. And yes, that is, in fact, a play on the Sesame Street character. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was, yeah, that was a name that was created by the newspapers of the time, which uh, first people first, uh, Big Bird began to gain notoriety back in uh, 1976. Many sightings down in the Rio Grande Valley. And, you know, just as a side note, Bigfoot, the Abominable Snowman, and the Loch Ness Monster are also newspaper creations. So all of our cryptids seem to be named by Mothman is another one. They've all been named mm. by, by newspapers. But anyways, so you have these Native American traditions of Thunderbirds. You have modern sightings. As far as Texas goes, um, sightings really, I mean, they date back. But again, the newspapers kind of got wind of everything starting in uh, 1976. There were three notable sightings in the Rio Grande Valley. On New Year's Day, 1976, uh, two young girls, Jackie Davies and Travy, Tracy Lawson, uh, claimed that they saw this man-sized bird with red glaring eyes and a hooked beak, uh, about five feet tall in their yard. Um, they tried to wake up their parents, but they were probably sleeping off the excesses of New Year's Eve the night before, and they didn't yeah. really want to check it out at that time. But later on that day, one of the, the dads went out and saw some footprints, and uh, then a local TV station got involved, and you know there was a news story run. Uh, a few days later, on January 7th, uh, a gentleman in Brownsville named Alberto Guajardo uh, claimed that something slammed into his mobile home at night, and he went out to investigate with a flashlight and saw this giant bird in his on his property, kind of staring him down. He said it. Uh, his exact quote was, it was like a bird, but not a bird. It was not from this earth, which may be just a little bit of an overreaction. Uh, strangely, the thing didn't fly away, but it kind of just sulked off or walked off into the brush. And uh, then the third sighting was in Raymondville. So this is in a concentrated area, and this was uh, pretty dramatic. On January 14th, uh, a gentleman named Armando Grimaldo was out smoking, on his patio and he claimed he heard the sounds of wings beating or wind rushing and he looked up and this thing descended on him and attacked him and ripped his clothing and he dove into some bushes to escape and uh, subsequently he was rushed to the Willisee County Hospital in a state of shock and uh, so you know after those incidents and there were many other sightings in that area places like Brownsville, Laredo, um, Eagle Pass, um, San Benito and so forth. And uh, people were describing this giant bird-like creature. And that's when the newspapers got involved. And stories of the big bird actually quickly were disseminated all over the globe. They were picked up by newswires in Germany and Japan. And so it became pretty famous. Um, there were sightings did eventually gravitate up to San Antonio, where I live. One of the reasons I'm here and uh, sightings around Poteet and there was a famous sighting involving some school teachers on the south side. Um, and, you know, subsequently, since I've lived here in San Antonio, I still get reports, you know, every few years or every couple of years from somebody, including sheriff's deputies and, you know, people like that that have, that have seen these giant birds flying around. And it's really a Texas thing, too, because most of the sightings are, you know, uh, Rio Grande Valley. Uh, up here to San Antonio, but I also do have some sightings from the Dallas area and Houston area and and so forth. So um, for whatever reason, Texas seems to have more of these modern Thunderbird 
reports than than other states do. Well, Texas is so big and it's so varied in different parts of Texas. There's dry parts and there's, like you say, the piney woods and it's so different. So many different places these things could be. That's true. And there could also be, uh, you know, you go right across the border into Mexico. Uh, I've, I've done some, some investigations in, in some of the mountains around Monterey, for example, which is just south of Texas. You know, there, those are some pretty remote areas there in the Sierra Madre. So, you know, yeah. one hypothesis is that these big birds may live in the, in the mountains of northern Mexico and that they migrate occasionally or fly across the border into Texas, and that's why they're not seen all the time. All the time. But, Makes but sense. who knows? Well, that makes sense. Birds do migrate. And that's, they do. That's as good an explanation as any. Let me ask you this. Um, there, I've, I've read some people saying that, that these big birds could either be or be remnants of, or, or evolutionary remnants of pterodactyls or pterodons or, or something like that. What is your theory on that? Yeah, um, it's interesting. There seem to be two different types of reports that I get. Some of the uh, eyewitnesses that I've interviewed have described something like you describe a pterosaur or a pterodactyl, which actually is not a bird, but a giant flying reptile uh, with leathery membranous wings. And uh, they supposedly died out for, well, they were around for like 150 million years, but they supposedly died out at the end of the Mesozoic era, the Cretaceous period about 65 million years ago. Um, so that's a pretty long gap. Um, and it's interesting to note that the, one of the largest species ever discovered in the fossil record was from uh, Texas. Uh, the really? bones were discovered out in yeah out in Big Bend National Park, something called Quetzalcoatlus northropi, northropii, which uh, had a wingspan of like forty feet across. It's Good one of the largest. Lord, there are airplanes. I was going to yeah. say there are airplanes with wingspans like that. That's a big old bird yeah. there, man. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but uh, the other. Uh, eyewitnesses that I've interviewed. The other half describes something that's clearly a bird. It has feathers. It has a hooked beak like a raptor, an exipterid, uh, usually like a dark solid color like black charcoal or dark brown. And, um, you know, usually about five feet tall. The average wingspan described is about uh, 14 feet. Uh, that's an estimate. And of course, people are, are not always great at, at estimating that's the, right. the size of things particularly if they're flying in the air and you don't have something to uh, compare it to. Um, now, the, the, what's interesting about that is they're much more recently than the pterodactyls or the pterosaurs. There were, there were giant birds that are just like the Thunderbirds, as described, that lived in North America known as pteratorns. And I know it's confusing because it sounds like pterosaur, but it's a pteratorn. And these were giant birds that were vulture-like or condor-like. And uh, one species, Aeolornis, uh, its fossils have been found in Nevada and Oregon, had a wingspan of 18 feet across. Wow. Uh, so there were birds similar to the Thunderbirds, uh, you know, twice as big as condors in North America up to about 10,000 years ago at the end of the Pleistocene. Wow. So that's much more recent than, than 65 million years ago, obviously. So that's right. So you have two, two possible candidates there and uh, – one is more improbable than the other, but they're both pretty far out. You know, to you'd wonder why why we wouldn't have physical evidence of a giant bird, airplane sized bird. You yeah. know, uh, so you know, I, I try to be a little skeptical and, and think critically on these subjects as well. But right, right. man, I've I've just interviewed so many people that swear that they and these are 
usually folks that are familiar with vultures, you know, we're talking about ranchers, hunters. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, know. like, man, I've seen turkey vultures. I've seen eagles. This was, you know, so, you know, that's pretty big. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, there they were get big, but there were three big. turkey vultures in my backyard this morning. They're huge. I mean, they're, they're really they big, big birds. Yeah. I mean, they really are. It's like Ken said. Uh, my my whole thought is is that he, you know, you got to try to be critical thinking and you got to try to debunk and everything. But there are so many reports; it's hard to hmm. just out and out say, "Look, people are just imagining stuff." There's too many reports for it to be not anything. Yeah, is that would you say that, Ken? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. That's kind of the way I look at it. I know scientists don't really accept eyewitness reports as being credible evidence, but it's it's a numbers game, you right. know. So yeah, you know, if if you get a handful of reports, then you know maybe that doesn't mean so much. But when you start getting into hundreds, hundreds, yeah, of sightings uh, of people and they're very consistent, and then you 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 combine those with the Native American traditions, exactly. You know, yeah. Then it's like, wow, you know. Could really all these people be imagining these things? It's, it's hard something to understand. To yeah. Well, you know, I find that very interesting, especially since I live in Texas. That it's it's all the more interesting to me. But I think Big Bird doesn't get as much press as the Loch Ness or well, Bigfoot. It's or my first time like hearing that, those so. huge birds. I, I I did not know this about the. Yeah. You know, could the Mothman? Now I know the Mothman has some other things about it that makes it different. But could could the Mothman actually be maybe one of these birds? That's a great question. There's actually two ways to look at that, uh, again, because, you know, originally, the original sighting of the Mothman on November 14, 1966, by the Scarberry and Mallet couples, um, they described something that could not be of this earth. It was, you know, its wingspan was too small compared to its height. It didn't flap its wings. It just shot off into the air and like a rocket, it chased their car. Yeah. I mean, those are all things that you wouldn't expect from any type of bird. And many of the other eyewitnesses of the original Mothman described that giant glow, the giant glowing red eyes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there's there was a lot of sort of additional weirdness that went with Mothman in terms of paranormal right. activity and Men in Black and UFOs and all that. The bridge caving um, in and all bridge, of that. Yeah. The bridge collapsing. Yeah. But the, yeah. but there are some witnesses. There was a guy named Thomas Urey who had a sighting early on in, at the end of November 66 that swears that what he saw was a bird. He said it was just a giant Thunderbird type thing. And it's worth noting that before the name Mothman popped up in the newspapers, Originally, many of the newspaper articles around Point Pleasant were calling it the bird. That's what they were calling this thing, whatever it was. Hmm, so a lot gosh. of people thought it was a bird, at least early on. So, yeah, I, I think there could be a little bit of crossover there. Um, now, I'm not a paranormal investigator per se. I find it interesting, but I do view certain things like Mothman to be more metaphysical and not, you know, really cryptos, true cryptozoology, unless we're talking about a giant bird. And some of the eyewitnesses just got it wrong. You yeah, know, they were yeah. they were spooked or they exaggerated or who knows. So. Well, we all know that it's it's very human to to uh, when you're startled or you've been through a traumatic experience like that to not remember things exactly the way they were or the way they looked or whatever. So, you know, I, I could see being terrified and seeing this thing and not really seeing this thing or remembering exactly what you see. Yeah. You know, it, in my experience as a paranormal investigator, I know that whenever something something like that happens, your brain goes into overdrive to try to make a logical explanation for what's happened. And uh, I could definitely see some of these folks being scared enough that <laughs> they didn't quite see it 
the way that it actually is. Well, I can testify to that because I can tell you right now, if a rat came crawling in here, <laughs> running across the floor, my recollection would be that's the biggest rat. It was as big as a house. At the, you uh-huh. know, by the time I got finished talking about it, because yeah. you know me, it gets you know, bigger it, and bigger all it, the time. Yeah, it would scare the <laughs> hell out of me because I don't like I don't like rodents. You know that. <laughs> well, let me ask, let me ask. Speaking of that, are there, are there any any uh, cryptozoological rodents that we could talk about? <laughs> really, we don't have to talk about that. We really don't. <laughs> uh, not off the top of my head, fortunately for, for Harold. Thank so. you, thank you, Ken. I appreciate <laughs> thank that. You. Thank you. In my corner, yes. Well, Ken, uh, you know this has been fascinating. I, I got one thing I want. I'm curious about. I'm curious, Kian, how did you get an interest in doing this? Where'd your interest come from to get involved in cryptozoology, and how did you get to that point? Well, it's just been a lifelong passion of mine. I never planned to make a career out of it, but uh, starting about eight or nine years old, and there were a lot of influences there, but you know, my father was a scientist. He was a, a forestry professor, and we spent a lot of time in the outdoors, and I collected a lot of critters, uh, snakes and salamanders, and my first pet was actually a cane and a small alligator. And, uh, wow. you know, so I loved animals, but I also loved uh, monster movies, of course. There you uh, go. Child of the 70s, I grew up on Godzilla and Creature from the Black Lagoon and all those those good movies. And uh, yeah. so when I first heard about Bigfoot when I was about eight or nine years old, I just, you know, something just clicked. And oh, it was okay. like, there we go. you know, that's, that's a common here's a mo- it's, a, it's a monster and it could be an unknown animal or mm-hmm. some strange creature. And, uh, but what I tell people is that, um, you know, even though I started obsessively researching these topics at a young age, my mother was a huge influence and she was very supportive of my interests. Um, but she also took me on a lot of amazing vacations. She was a travel agent. So I traveled all over the world with her. Oh, wow. Like we were talking about the Amazon before I've been there. I camped in the Amazon. I've, uh, hiked the Australian desert. I've been to Africa, Asia, all over Europe and wherever I've gone, I've always investigated a lot of these things. And, uh, in fact, when I was only 15 years old, I was, uh, my mother, uh, arranged for me to vacation at Loch Ness in Scotland. With oh my, my gosh. Wow. So I was, I was hiking around the lake at age 15 wow. with a movie, an eight millimeter movie camera. And I interviewed people and talked to all the locals. And so I was, you know, actively searching for it. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, I've just, I've been, pursuing it my whole life but i just i didn't plan to to make it a career but i've just been very blessed and i've had opportunities of course to write books and do some tv shows and uh lectures and so it's you know it keeps me going well terry is green with envy right now i'm so so (laughs) jealous i mean going to loch ness is is on my bucket list you've you've said that before that's one of your things you want to do you know are you going to be anywhere uh, anywhere in our area uh anytime soon you know um, really the only event I have coming up in the area, uh, is going to be the Hanobi Bigfoot festival in Oklahoma, Hanobi, Oklahoma. Yeah. That's, uh, that's my old that's stomping the, grounds out there. Yeah. For, first weekend in October. And unfortunately I won't be there this year, but, uh, there is the Texas Bigfoot conference in Jefferson, Texas, yeah. uh, yeah. Uh, October 16th, I believe. And that's a 20 years going strong. It's a great conference for people that are interested Bigfoot, they're going to have Dr. Jeff Meldrum and Lauren Coleman and Lyle Blackburn. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I wish I could be 
probably going to be the first one I haven't been at in years, but I'm booked uh, at another event in Indiana that weekend. So, um, yeah, Harold um, and I are going to go next year. We're, we're going to let COVID die down a little bit yeah. before we start going to these events, but Harold, Harold and I, hopefully we're start making some of these events. Um, and maybe we'll get to meet you guys in person, but we'd sure like to have you on the show again sometime, maybe next year sometime or something like that. If you're willing to talk about other things, maybe we'll talk about Mothman next time. There's plenty of stuff to talk about in the field of cryptozoology, and I would uh, love to come back on and uh, do this again sometime. Awesome. That'd well, be great. Ken Gerhart, ladies and gentlemen, check out his books. Mm. I, I have The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, and I've been reading it slowly because I've got so many things to do, but it is a good read. Be sure you check it out if you're interested. He, he was written one on The Mothman, I believe, uh, Chupacabra, Loch Ness Monster, uh, and... Uh, the Beast of Javadon. Javadon. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> want to want to check these out, folks, and we'll put a link in the comment section. Ken, thank you so much. Good luck on your uh, your uh, events that you've got to make here in the next month or two, and uh, we hope to talk to you again real soon. Uh, thank you for spending time with us here on The Spook Show. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, great questions. Uh, good talking to you, and uh, thanks to everyone who listened in. All right. Oh, man, what an interview, Harold. That was absolutely fantastic. Um and uh, we hope that you folks enjoyed the show. If you did, then uh, please leave us a comment down in the comment yep. sections. Visit us on Facebook. Facebook. Uh, you email can, us. You can email us. Price Presley Show at gmail.com. Just save that. Email us any questions, anything you want to say to us. That's right. We want to hear about it. good stories about anything. That's right. It doesn't matter. If anything. It, if, it, if it spooks you, we want to know about that's it. That's right. That's right. Especially if it spooks Harold. We're looking <laughs> well, that for, ain't going to be hard to do. We're I mean. looking for stories about ghost rats <laughs> or mutant rats or anything like that. Great. Ouija boards. Can I get a, come on, man. <laughs> come on, man. Are you happy now? That was the first one of the show there. Well, but definitely do leave us a comment, ladies and gentlemen, and definitely please subscribe on our YouTube channel. Leave us a thumbs up and a comment. That helps us tremendously to keep this show going. So, that's right. The Price Presley Spook Show, man. We love doing it for you. That's right. And uh, I think that's about all the time we have for that's, this episode. That's it for this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Terry Price. I'm Harold Presley. Don't get spooked. Spooked.